Turn with me, please, or listen on as I read Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through, 24, uh, through 22. Acts chapter one, verse, uh, 4, verses 1 through 22. And hear God's word. Now, as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the, of, uh, of the men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together in Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power, by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means... Uh, he has been made well. Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, what shall we do to these men? For indeed, what, what, that, uh, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spread no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no one in his name, in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, more than to God you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For, when, uh, for the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the lesson it teaches us, a very important lesson. It's one we're still trying to learn. It's one we need to be taught. We ask you that through the book of Acts we might get a clearer picture of the church, not only in its relation to you, but in its relation to the world. Grant to us that wisdom which we seek from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the record of the healing of this man goes beyond chapter 3, obviously. We read of his healing and then of the sermon, but it isn't finished then because we read of, well, the aftermath. And very similar to what we find in the ministry of Jesus, the miracles of the apostles generated the disdain of the authorities. And just as in the face of the teaching and the miracles of Jesus, they plotted against him, so they began to plot against these men, the apostles. Well... 
there were two issues here at stake, one of which uh, I, be- I begun, or began to reflect upon in the prayer, and that is the fact that whereas in Israel the state and the church were in essence one, it's true, you did have the, the civil magistrate and you did have the priesthood, and they were different in that sense, but they lived in harmony under a theocracy. God was beginning a new arrangement with the people of God, and so it was inevitable that the church would have to begin to face this question of its newfound relationship with uh, with the authorities, with the state. The other issue, well, we'll look at that. The other issue was uh, here the resurrection. Uh, we read that they were annoyed because they were preaching re- the resurrection from the dead. Now, that is the thing, the resurrection, that is the thing that the world today is pretending to celebrate. It's the thing that the world is pretending to be happy about. But the truth is, if the world knew what was involved in the resurrection, the the truth about the resurrection, namely the exclusive claim that there is salvation in no one but Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life, well, then I don't think they'd be celebrating. In fact, I think they would hate this doctrine just as much as these men hated it here. Well, this isn't a sermon on the resurrection directly, but it is one indirectly in that sense. And the first thing that I would notice, uh, you have this church now relating to the world outside of Israel. I mean, they were in Israel, but they uh, things were not as they were. They weren't under the old covenant any, anymore. The new covenant had dawned, and, well, they were beginning to relate to the authorities that be. And what we uh, discover along with them as a first point is the malice of men. Now, this is something necessary for Peter to add here. It's useful for us to get a complete portrait of the life of the church in her beginning, because so much of what she experienced then is what she experienced always. Now, what we've seen thus far is that there was among these Jews, even among those who were clamoring for the death of Jesus, A wonderful response to the preaching. People were gladly receiving the message. They were calling upon the name of the Lord. They were being saved. They were being baptized. They were being added to the church. We might think if if we had never read Acts before and we didn't know anything of the history of the church, that suddenly Israel was accepting her Savior and her Messiah. It almost seemed as though from Acts chapters 2 and 3 that all were ready we're ready to receive this message and be saved. But Acts chapter 4 begins to paint a true picture. And that is the reality. Uh, the reality is that there are very few who are saved. There are very few, even in times of revival, who are prepared to accept and to receive the message of the gospel. Indeed, it isn't just uh, an indifference or a rejection, but it's something further. It's malice. It's hatred. It's enmity. We see here what exists in the heart of man. And what exists in the heart of man is a hatred of God. And there is nothing that provokes this hatred so much as this teaching about Jesus and this teaching about the resurrection. You see, the other side of the teaching of the resurrection is, uh, is the fact that you will die in your sins if you don't believe in Christ as Lord. Yes, if you believe in him, you will live. You will live forevermore and he'll raise up your body on the last day. But you see, if you don't believe in him, if you reject him, Well, then you will be rejected. We read so much in the Gospels about the malice of men towards Jesus as he dwelt among them. And what we discover here is that that same malice still existed in their hearts. Indeed, even the same men 
the, the two of the men we read of here, uh, Ananias and, and Caiaphas, these were men who were involved in the condemnation of Jesus. Are we surprised to see that these apostles fell into the hands of these very same men? And yet, do we, see, uh, do we not see at the same time that it was inevitable that it should be so? That happy as the result may be at the beginning, so many receiving the gospel, it was inevitable that these disciples should suffer along with their master. For that is exactly what he had told them. He didn't say, you're going to go into the world. He, he did say, you're going to do greater things than me. And, and already, in some sense, that was true. They were gathering uh, a church like Jesus had never done in his life. He set them doing, uh, doing great works in his name. None so great as building the church as a worldwide organization. But the disciple isn't greater than the master, Jesus said. And as they hated me, so they will hate you. Indeed, this is uh, the badge of true discipleship. It's a badge of honor for the disciple to be like his master in this way. Yes, it's inevitable. And it was inevitable even from the very beginning that they should be hated and that they should suffer. And that the preaching and the activity of the early church would animate the malice of men. Do we see the same truth in our own day? Do we recognize that nothing ever changes in this regard? That men will always hate Jesus. If they are confronted with the real Jesus, they will always hate the doctrine of the resurrection. They'll hate his disciples. I'm not saying they don't like us. I'm not saying that they'd rather not deal with us. I'm saying that really what exists in their hearts is malice. They would round us up and throw us in prison if they could. They've done that at times, you know. They might do it in our own day. They would kill us. They would kill our children. That's how the world feels about Christians. And that never changes. Do we think it is possible to make friends with this sinful world? Uh, again, happy as the picture is in Acts chapters 2 and 3. Let us realize the true situation. The world will never love the Christian. The world will never love the church. Speaking of their malice, let me note the extent of it. Really, there is no limit. There is nothing they wouldn't do if they were not limited in some sense. But let us also see, as here and in the case of Jesus and always, that the malice of men is built not on truth but on falsehood. They believe a lie. They reject the truth. In this case, it was the truth of the resurrection, which uh, even they could not deny, or at least the healing of this man. They couldn't deny it. You remember what Jesus said to those men in the Gospels? He says, well, they were Sadducees, and he says, you neither know the power of God nor the scriptures. And what are they left with? Well, they're left with a lie. But the other thing that I would notice is how impotent they are, in fact. In other words, what we discover here and all through history is that we need not fear the malice of men. I don't want to overstate this point because ultimately we find they become very effective at persecuting these Christians. And many of these men die and suffer at the hands of these men. And yet I stand by the point. I say it again. They are impotent. They're powerless. You need not fear them. Uh, it's interesting to see uh, their, their counsel here and how foolish and clumsy they are. They don't know, they don't know what to do. They're confounded by these uh, fishermen preachers, as it were. And they haven't the slightest clue what to do. The best they can say is, well, you need to stop it. We're going to threaten you. And then they send them on their way. You need to stop it, but they back it with no force. Again, I don't, want, I don't want to overstate this because eventually they are brought to the shedding of blood. And yet I would say again, we need not fear the malice of men. They are not so powerful. They are not so cunning as they, as they pretend to be. 
certainly not more powerful nor more wise than the God whom we serve. Well, as a second point, let me notice the cowardice which often results from the malice of men. Now, happily, that isn't what you find here. What you find is tremendous courage, which even their opponents recognize, and boldness. And yet I would, I would note that you did find it a little earlier. I keep reminding you that it wasn't long ago that Peter denied our Lord. It wasn't long ago that all the disciples, these apostles who so boldly preached Jesus now and were prepared to suffer for him, were scattered like sheep. At the, pers- at, at, at the trial of Jesus Christ. Oh, and there are many instances of this throughout the history of the church. Stout men who cave under the pressures of persecution. And yet look at them now. They weren't cowards anymore, were they? I'm happy to think of other instances of this. Men who were so afraid of men or of man that they denied what they knew to be true. And yet who rose again in bold defiance of their persecutors. Uh, for instance, we think of Luther at, uh, at Worms when I, I won't say he denied what he believed, but he said, I need time to consider. The truth is he was afraid. He didn't know what to say. He didn't know in that moment if he was prepared to die for what he believed. But he returned uh, sometime later. I don't know if it was the next day or several days later. And he gave his famous defiant speech that it's neither safe nor wise to go against one's, one's conscience. I do not retract, retract my writings. Here I stand, I can do no other. And in that moment, Luther was honestly prepared to die for his writings. And if they hadn't swept him away to the Wartburg Castle, he most likely would have. Here was a man who caved and yet who rose again. Another famous instance is that of Cranmer. I don't need... Uh, To recount that here, the story has been told many times in the pulpit. I'm merely making the point that even the best men are capable of cowardice. Uh, Perhaps it would be true of us. We don't know. We wonder what might happen in the face of real pressure and persecution. Would we cave under the pressure? All of us are aware of the cowardice of our own hearts. But the story of Peter, the story of John and the apostles, the story of Luther, the story of Cranmer is that there is hope even for cowards. Thank God. Well, I say you find it in the Bible, you find it in history and you find it today. The cowardice of men that often results from the malice of men. It pains me to say it, but there are still Christians and worse ministers who are afraid of the malice of men. Worse still is how they pretend Either their cowardice or else being complicit is a virtue, a Christian virtue. Men who pretend obeying lawless dictates of the state is the essence of Christianity. Well, is that what you find here? You know, I'm interested to see that this is Peter here who's saying, no, I won't obey you. I refuse to obey you. Here I stand. I could do no other. He does it in Acts 4. He does it again in Acts 5. Well, you remember, Peter's the one who has to tell the church later in 1 Peter 2. He says, I want you to obey the lawful authorities. Well, which is it, Peter? Well, it's both. We'll consider that later on. But there are matters about which we must or for which we must be prepared to disobey the powers that be. And so that leads me now to a third point, and that is the courage of some men. We read of it here. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, another way we might translate that, though I agree boldness is the best translation, is the courage And it was a courage that was noteworthy. It was striking, even in the eyes of their enemies. 
And so thank God malice is not all there is, nor cowardice. For there are, in God's providence, men who still have true courage. Perhaps men who once were cowards, but now who found their courage. What is the explanation? How does a Christian find his courage? Well, there's only one explanation, which is possible. And it's what we read of Peter in his preaching, his defiant preachers to these men. It's that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. It wasn't that Peter was able to fetch something from his own sinful heart. No, he had looked there before and found nothing. Nothing but fear. He thought he was strong, but he wasn't. He thought he could stand, but he fell. The natural man lacks courage in these things. But Peter, as he was full of the Spirit, suddenly was, well, he was as defiant as ever. The same man. It's amazing to see this contrast. Do you remember what our Lord told them? I don't remember exactly where it was, but he said, I don't want you to fear man. I want you to realize that they they will take you and they will throw you in prison and they'll falsely accuse you. And they will put terrible pressure on you. But don't fear them because, in fact, don't even prepare in advance what you're going to say because the Spirit will help you in that moment. He'll give you words to say. That's what we're finding here. It isn't just Peter, Peter preaching a sermon, but it's Peter defying the authorities. Peter at odds with the authorities. And he found that he had something to say. And he found in saying it, Uh, A a boldness and a courage which, well, which inspires me. And I hope it inspires you. Do you remember John the Baptist? It was the same kind of thing here. John the Baptist was a man like this. A man who was full of the spirit. And he not only condemned in a general way the sins of his day, but he boldly defied the authorities. And he paid his life for it. It cost him his life. That's exactly what we find here with Peter and John. They fell into the hands of the authorities. They defy them still. Now, Peter and John were not beheaded, not yet at least. John was, but it's the same response. They were ready to condemn the men who were prepared to kill them, even the very men who had just crucified Jesus. Did they think it would be any different for them? Surely it must have occurred to them that in falling into the hands of these same men, the same fate awaited them. Well, Jesus said I would be crucified. The time must have come or something like that at least. You remember what Peter said to Je- uh, what Jesus said to Peter? They're going to take you to a place you don't want to go. They must have thought this is it. And yet, look at him. He's defying not only his accusers who were ready to kill him, but rulers, those in authority. I wonder if we have any conception of true preaching and true Christian witness until we see this: that a man who is not ready to die for the truths he professes does not really believe them. So the Holy Spirit produced in them this conviction along uh, and along with it, a willingness to die for these things. You know, this has always been the testimony of the martyrs, men like Cranmer, uh, who, who had been a coward. And others like him, men who died for the faith. The thing that always was most remarkable about them was not only their boldness and their courage in the face of death, but the amazing joy that they were given. And what was the explanation? What was the source of these things? It was the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus had promised. Not only that, and and I've I've been saying this already, but let me make this as a distinct point. As an aspect of their of their courage, their the spirit produced in them a kind of defiance that amazes me. You see, they were ready not only to die, but to defy the authorities that be. 
They were ready to defy their malice. Even as they felt they had fallen into the hands of men who were ready to kill them, still they said, you're the ones who crucified Jesus. He was still convicting and condemning them for their sin. He was still calling them to repentance. This is something that I'm very fascinated by. And I plan to say more in this and other sermons. Again, the Christian, the preacher at odds with the authorities. Uh, We find it again in Acts chapter 5, where Peter famously says, uh, we must obey God rather than men. Uh, One of the things that I realize is is that Luke is interested in this theme. It keeps coming up. He wants the Christians to see Uh, What it was like for uh, the early church to be subject to persecution. What it was like for the early church to have the strained relation with the state. But here I would simply notice that when a man becomes full of the spirit, he becomes aware of this. Who it is who rules the universe. Who's the true king. You see, a man who knows this for sure. That Jesus Christ is Lord and that he's king and that he's reigning the universe is someone who's not afraid to defy the authorities. His sole conviction is to serve Jesus Christ. He's not afraid of man. He's afraid of God. And so these men, Peter and John, like Jeremiah and Paul later, are driven forward by a kind of compulsion to preach even against the rulers of their day. They say this, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you uh, more than to God, you judge. You see, there's there's the dilemma. You or God, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We must preach them. Like Jeremiah said and Paul later, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. I'm driven on. I'm compelled to preach this. Whatever comes, whatever fate awaits me, whatever men think of me, I'm compelled to preach it. You see, the spirit, when he fills a man, and especially when he fills a preacher, uh, produces a kind of necessity. That's another mark of the true preaching, a necessity which does not arise from the natural heart. The natural heart of man, as I say, is not only indifferent, but he hates the truths of the gospel. But a man whose heart has been renewed and now full of the spirit is a man who finds and called to preach. Let me add that as well as a man who finds that he must preach these things and he's not afraid to do it anymore. Let me suggest that there's no hope for the church unless she's led by such men. It's absolutely necessary that we uh, find and insist uh, such men be in the pulpit and that we we don't tolerate men of another stripe in the pulpit. It it seems so clear when you read Acts. You think, what would have happened to the church if Peter and John and others had had simply caved and cowered and said, you know, uh, if we give away the resurrection, can we keep this? (laughs) If they began to accommodate their message, no, there would be no church. If they did not defy the authorities on these points, these were men who were crystal clear about their task and nothing in all the world could stop them. But I wonder and I wonder this for myself. I wonder this about the church. I wonder if we have such clarity. I wonder if we have such boldness. Are we prepared to face the test? Are we prepared to defy the authorities that be? Are we prepared to suffer for the faith? Well, as the next point, I would note the power of God. You see, I've talked about the malice of men and the cowardice of men. Well, let me talk as a counterpoint to that, not only of the courage of some men, but of the power of God, which is seen in so many ways, most evidently in the healing of this man. Very obviously, they asked by whose 
authority did you do this? And they said, well, we did it by the authority of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ, this man now stands whole before you. It's, a, it's an instance of the power of God. Obviously, the same could be said of Jesus. You killed him, but God raised him from the dead. And that was the great truth that they were preaching and for which they stood uh, in the eyes of these men condemned as heretics. The power of God seen in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The power of God is seen in the preaching of Peter and John. It's seen in their stout hearts. The thing that impresses me most is not Peter, it's not John. I'm impressed with them, I'm inspired by them, but it's not that. It's the power of God, and that's the thing I want. And I wonder if that's the thing you want. The power of God in man. Do you see how it is always greater than the malice of men? Always. It produced such a result in these men that even their enemies could not deny it. And look at the result of the power of God at work through Peter and John and this man who was healed. You see, these men, these men who hated Christianity, thought that they were putting an end to it. But we ask, did did they put an end to it? Did they succeed? No, it's just the opposite. The stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. And the more men opposed Christianity, the more they succeeded in building it. That's the amazing thing. What was it or who was it that was building the church? Well, it wasn't these men. He was only using them. Their weakness, their hatred, he was using. uh, it, It was God himself who was using them. And so we could call this also the wisdom of God. Do we see how it confounds these men? The foremost religious authorities and scholars of the day. Utterly confounded by the preaching of two fishermen, Peter and John. The power of God is greater than the weakness of men. Uh, or, or rather, it's better. The power of God, the weakness of God is better than the power of men. The, the, the wisdom of the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of men. It might have seemed very foolish and very weak to try to build the church in this way. And yet, that's exactly what God was doing. He was working through opposition. He was working through weakness. He takes again the stone which is rejected and upon this he builds the church. He doesn't take, in other words, uh, uh, the things that the world likes and say, well, that's how I'll build my church. He doesn't make these men popular. He makes these men hated. He makes them persecuted. And then he builds the church through the hatred and the malice of men and the persecution of his people. Well, that isn't what we would do. But God is wiser than men. And that should give us all great confidence, for that is what God is still doing today. Every time the church is being opposed, every time the church is facing the hostility of the world, what we should recognize is not that the world uh, or, or the church is in jeopardy because the world is against us. No, we should realize God is at work. He's still building his church. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it wonderful to see? It was all the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in my eyes. I hope that men are still saying that today. Ultimately, the greatest issue of all, we're still considering the power of God, was the power to save. That's really the issue at stake, even uh, above the concerns of the church and the fate of these preachers. The power of God to save. And where was that found? You see, that was the great issue. This was the thing for which these men were prepared to die. Well, it was in the name of Jesus. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That was the great issue. What I keep saying is the real issue. The main thing that 
Jesus had made clear to these men and that they were clear about, even in this healing or this miracle, the thing that was really obvious was the power of Jesus to save. And this man was but a picture of it. But do you realize, and this is why men hate this so much, it was such an exclusive claim. Peter doesn't give an inch to his enemies. They were ready to kill him, and yet he underscores the point. You know, it isn't just the resurrection, Peter says, and I was saying this early on. What you really hate to hear, and let me say it again, is that no man can be saved except as he repents and he submits and confesses that Jesus is Lord. But you know, that is exclusive on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's something that's really quite wonderful. Because even now, Peter is saying, you are the very men who saw to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And even now, he has the power and he has the heart to save you. You see, it's really the most wonderful thing. And it is powerful. He has the power to break the stony heart of a wayward sinner. But that leads me now to the fifth and the final point. And it's the question of authority. It's a question, I think, that the Lord leaves with us to some extent. We're we're always going to be asking it. And as we go through Acts, we're, we're going to be confronted with it time and again, just as we're confronted with it throughout our lives. This is one of the great questions that Luke was concerned to address, as indeed was Peter in his epistle and Paul in his epistles. This was, in many ways, uh, aside from the question of the Jew and the Gentile relation, the great question facing the early church, as I say. Now that the theocracy was dissolved and the church was formed, what was the relation of these Christians as a church to be to the state? It was a question that was already being asked in the ministry of Jesus, as you remember. It was a question of authority, which we read in Matthew 22. We read it in other places. And you remember the answer that Jesus gives. He says, Following me doesn't mean that you can't obey the state. It does mean a great deal, in fact. It means that, uh, well, I'll get to what it means, but, but it doesn't mean that you don't have to obey the state. A Christian is still able to render submission and obedience to the powers that be. But you see, it's the question of authority. But the real question is, with respect to that, the duty we have to the state, the duty we have to God, This question of authority comes down to this. When should believers disobey? When should we become defiant? As I say, I think perhaps, this is just my own analysis, but I think perhaps Christians are too ready to obey and ready almost never to disobey. In the early church, it seemed the opposite was true. They were too ready to disobey. And in the epistles, I had to remind them, you know, you need to obey the powers that be. They are ministers for your good and not for evil. When should the believer disobey? That's a question we need to consider because that's what we find the apostles doing here. Or as Luther puts it in his famous little treatise on secular authority, to what extent is it to be obeyed? That's precisely the question that I'm asking here. There are many answers that are given, but let me say that based upon Acts chapters 4 and 5, that I think the issue is often put in a way that is far too narrow and not broad enough. I think that most believers read these passages and think we must always obey the state short of this, this one single thing, being asked to deny Jesus as Lord. But anything else, well, we must obey. I don't think that's what you find here at all. Of course, that's the great thing. That's the crucial issue. But I think the answer can be broader than that. And the answer is broader than that. And so let me provide my own answer to what I admit is a very difficult question. 
And let me say before I answer the question that I am not pointing the fingers at anyone here. So I'm attempting to give this answer in all humility. But when should the believer disobey? And my answer is when something vital is at stake. When something greater or above the concerns of the state is at stake. And this is where I think the doctrine of the two kingdoms helps us. Something that I believe we find in these early chapters of Acts. The two kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And there are things that the state or the kingdoms of men have no right to ask of a Christian. And thus we are not obliged to render unto it. You remember Jesus says, render unto Caesar's that which is Caesar's. Well, some things don't belong to Caesar. Of course, taxes do. We recognize that Jesus is saying that. The inscription of Caesar is on the very money that you use. He's entitled to ask it of you. Uh, Paul speaks of taxes in, in Romans 13. I just give that as one example. There are some things that, that uh, the state may rightly under God ask of us. There are other things the state may not. And if we are clear about the things about which the state may not ask of us, then we will be better prepared to respond as these men did. It's a question of allegiance. That's precisely what Jesus is getting at when he says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and, not, and to God the things that are God's. Or as the, the apostles later say, we must obey God rather than men. Or as Joshua says to the people, choose this day whom you will serve. Will you serve God or will you serve men? Of course, at times there is no dilemma. And when there is no dilemma, we may happily serve both. And, and recognizing at such times in rendering obedience to men, we're rendering our obedience to God. But whenever that is the choice, whenever we are confronted with the dilemma, choosing God or men, God must always be the answer. Though it really does become clear whom men serve by the choices they make, doesn't it? You see, men can say that I serve God, but what happens when there's a dilemma? What happens when there's a choice to make? If you've ever read the religious affections, uh, you'll find Edwards making that at the, end of, at the end of the book. He's saying, here's what true religious conf uh, affections consist of. They consist in obedience. And the Christian is someone who not only says, I love God, but he proves he loves God in the choices he makes. He's confronted with a dilemma and his heart his heart gravitates towards God, even under the pressures of this world. And so I'm saying wherever there is this conflict, we must choose God. We must serve God rather than man. That is always true. And there must always be the commitment of the Christian and of the preacher. Consider the situation here, the exact situation. It wasn't just the name of Jesus that was at stake. It was the name of Jesus that was at stake. But the issue was, bro the issue was broader. What was at stake was the preaching of the name of Jesus. And that's what they were seeking to suppress. They were seeking to suppress not only the belief, but the practice. They were seeking to suppress the church itself. As John Stott puts it, this was unauthorized preaching. And that was not allowed. These men were heretics of the orthodoxy of the day. And they must get in line or pay the price. Let me put it another way. What was at stake was whether this new community could gather for worship to hear the preaching. And that was something. Well, that was something they would not give up. To not preach was something they could not agree to. May I put it as simply as this. That no preacher who ever allows the state to tell him not to preach or what to preach has any right to preach to anyone. And so once more, it's a matter of this. 
as Jesus says, render unto each what is his due. That is the teaching of the Bible. Well, all right, we say as Christians, we render unto Caesar what is his. That is to the state. What it, asks of, what it asks of us in a lawful capacity, we are prepared to obey always. And that's part of our Christian witness, we realize. But only so long as we do not rob God in the process. For the other side of the teaching is render unto God what is God's. And certainly never as an implied thought, rob from God to give unto Caesar. Never do that. Well, there's no conflict in that sense. The way Jesus puts it, he puts it so simply, render to each what is his due. For we realize that the state has no right to claim of us what we owe to God. As long as we, we are clear about that, we will never err in this regard. And what do we owe to God? You see, that really is the most important question. When we realize what we, we owe to God, we will, we will realize these are things that the state can never ask of us. And will never surrender to the state. Well, to put it in the simplest form, we owe to him our highest allegiance and devotion. He, he commands us to love him with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength and all of our mind. Nothing less than that. Jesus says no man who, who doesn't hate his father and his mother and so on is worthy to follow me. Is he saying, well, I want you to hate your father? No, he's not saying that. But he's saying, well, what Edward said, the one, uh, the one that you love is made clear by the choices that you make. And where there is a dilemma, well, it will become clear. If ever you should be made to choose, you are prepared you must be prepared to hate your father and your mother and your sister and even your children for the sake of Jesus Christ. We owe Jesus Christ our highest allegiance and devotion, nothing less than that. And whether that is true will be revealed in the choices we make. Do, don't hide behind the state because you're afraid to worship God. Don't pretend that's a virtue. Number two, we owe him public confession, whatever the cost. We are to own him. We are to confess him publicly, not quietly in a room, not not just to one another because we're afraid of what men think. But we should publicly, even at the cost of our own lives, confess Jesus is Lord. We owe him our, our obedience. Whatever he requires of us, we will do whatever it costs us. We owe him our worship. He wants us to praise him. He wants us to do so as a new community. Again, let me stress what the state here, as it existed in that day, was seeking to stamp out was not just the belief that Jesus was Lord, but the result of that belief. And that was the existence of the church. What's at stake, let us realize, is the very existence of the church itself. And will we allow the state to interfere in the church? Number five, we owe him most of all this to acknowledge salvation in his son. Let us boldly declare along with these men our belief that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is always the commitment of the Christian. That must always be the commitment of the preacher. Whatever the cost, whatever the state is saying, whatever uh, the state might suggest is the authorized or the orthodox preaching of the day. That is the one thing we will Hold fast and confess and come together to confess and to hear. And I'm saying that the state has no right to claim any of these things from us. And if the state ever says, render these things unto me, we'll say, well, no, I can't do that. Whatever you think I should do, let God be the judge. But I know this. I've got to do this. I'm compelled to do it. This is what God has called me to do. I must render unto God what is God's. That's always the first thing. And are we clear about what God 
requires of us? Are we clear about what we owe to him? And are we prepared to give it to him, whatever the cost? That's, well, that's the question here that confronts the Christian. And we have here something of a model for all of us to follow, what I would call courageous discipleship. And as I read this, I say, uh, and I think to myself, not having really ever been tested, but that's what I want to be. I wonder if that's what you want to be, a courageous disciple. Oh, you might acknowledge like Peter, I'm a coward now. I couldn't face the pressures uh, that they faced, the threat even of crucifixion. And yet do we realize by the example of these men that the spirit can make this of any man. The spirit can make us a courageous Christian. Amen. And let us return praise to God by standing together and singing hymn 236 in the Psalter hymnal. Hymn 236.